out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American songwriter and producer. It's the one and only Desmond Child, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Recently brought out a book about his life titled Living on a Prayer. Big songs, big life and has recorded or written for lots of artists including Kiss, Cher, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, Bonnie Tyler, Ricky Martin, billions basically. Anyway, the book came out very recently and is available from all good bookshops and also online. I will give you a link to his website as well. But anyway, this is the interview, so after several minutes of interest and potential chat, we get down to the exciting subject that really was about how the book came about, and this was Desmond's response. Desmond, it's over to you. Well, it it isn't this precise moment because uh, I started the book over seven years ago with my collaborator, David Ritz. After I had read a review in the New York Times of his book uh, called Respect, it's a biography of Aretha Franklin they made the movie from with uh, Jennifer Hudson. Yes. And so when I, read, when I read the review of the book, something touched me about it, and I asked to meet him. So I flew to Los, Los Angeles, and I walked into his house, and he greeted me at the door, and he dressed as sort of like a Tibetan monk with uh, Moreau uh, paintings as tattoos all over his body. <laughs> and he's got the shaved head, like he's very monk-like. And um, after asking me two questions, I burst into tears. And so I just knew he was the one that I could tell my story to. Yes. And I think the, the motivation for me initially was that, you know, I'd been a studio rat, you know, most of my life and most of the life of my our sons. Um, you know, I'd come home late, they'd be asleep. I'd wake up in the morning, they'd be gone already. I mean, I only would see them, let's say, on a Sunday because I also work Saturdays. And so I, I wanted them to have, a, you know, something that they could read sometime in their life where they could actually get to know me, the real me inside. That's why I was so candid in the book. I, I you know, and as the book unfolded, I told more and more truth. And um, David has a way of getting it out of you. Yeah. So, and so, uh, you know, uh, he, he was very um, just nurturing and healing. Yes. So in a way, it was a kind of what I call it my uh, seven year jailhouse confession. And it's a it's been a real reckoning. And yes. when you start to see that, you know, I've had a number one song in six different decades at the reflection of my life is in the songs and in our times. So it's a real reflection of a half a century of American, or well, contemporary life, and we're not just American. Yes. It sounds like a very intense um, process, working with David on this project, and also sort of digging deep into a lot of material. Because I did an interview with another artist recently, Adele Berté, and she's just brought out one of her books, The Early Years. And um, I think when she wrote it, she she didn't realise who her father was. And then it went to print, and then she found out her real father through a, a um, sort of blood test, which was quite revealing. That will be in the next book, probably. Um, so, yes, your 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 family is also quite complex as well. That That's kind of reminded me, because you didn't know your father until you were 18. So going through the process of putting this book together, did it feel like a quite a journey, a monthly journey, when you had to sort of go and delve deep into more aspects of, you know, parts that you might have had slightly buried or sort of have forgotten? Yes, I mean, I, I hadn't forgotten the facts of it, but I had let go of a lot of the emotion of it. And um, retelling the stories brought a lot up. And it was really hard um, doing the audiobook because there's something different about, you know, reading what you've said, like on a page, but then when you say the words, then you're really like, you know, it's your testimony. And, um, you know, it, I, I thought, well, once I get it all out, then it's out. 
then I can just forget about it. But no, it comes out and then now it's it's out and it's <laughs> all around me. It doesn't go away. No, I could imagine actually, because it's it's kind of interesting the the childhood period and and you had these kind of different you know fa- almost fathers, didn't you? In in that kind of story, and then there's this kind of emotional part of the story a bit later on, where you you're you know becoming a father and then sort of working on another spiritual part of that journey with Deepak, the famous Deepak. So you obviously really have sort of gone through the emotional and spiritual kind of you know sort of whirlwind really haven't you the tumble dryer of of like having everything pulled apart and uh-huh. going through the ups and downs how did that sort of affect you sort of when you were telling your story and then seeing it written down and then reprocessing it did was there moments where you wanted to go back and add little bits which you thought actually I just remembered something else I really want to explain or when you saw it written did you then want to go back and occasionally think actually I'd like to have that changed a bit because it it doesn't feel you know because there's the words but there's the emotion behind the words isn't there well I I think that you know for me there were a lot of details that I wanted to add but David judiciously said you know the general audience reader doesn't care about what color the curtains were in the room (laughs) you just walked into but to me it's like purple You know, uh, that's just, I'm just joking, but um, it, it, I, I, I did, um, you know, you know, this is how it worked. He would ask me questions and I would answer them into his tape recorder. Then he would send them off to the, the transcriber and word for word, everything I said was, was written down. So he'd get those the next morning. And so then he would work for a while on his own, kind of editing those. And then we go over those and I say, well, maybe I really should say this word. Or I remembered that, no, it wasn't that person. It was this person. And, you know, that's, it, that's why it took seven years. It was meticulous. And, yes. um, and so now is the time to do it in terms of releasing the book. And finally, I had to like draw a line in the sand because other things started to happen. I, I during the course of it all, I got a chance to work with Barbara Streisand, so that become became one of the latter chapters in the book where I tell you know in very detailed because it was fresh on my mind. And then after that, it was the invitation to perform an evening of my music at the Parthenon, um, at the foot of the Parthenon, the the Odeon of Herodotus Atticus uh, Amphitheater in the Acropolis, right? Yes, absolutely. In, in Athens. And uh, Alice Cooper uh, joined us and Bonnie Tyler, Rita Wilson, the band the Rasmus, Kip Winger, and a host of other talented people, Tabitha Fair, Chris Willis, uh, Andreas Carlson, Justin Benlolo, and the new discovery, Leo Dante. Plus, the band was a combination of Greek musicians and American musicians. Plus, there was an 18-piece all-female string orchestra behind. And at the end, a 60-voice choir made up of mostly children. And, um, you know, some adults came down the aisles holding these golden, I mean, these uh, glowing orbs. And uh, uh, the Rasmus performed Love Will Keep Us Alive, which was so apropos, I mean, to the moment and to everything that's going on in the world. And uh, it, it was astounding how it all came together with cinematic. We had, you know, video mapping behind. Every song had a different atmosphere and um, a look. And, um, you know, it, we went all out. And, um, I, you know, we filmed it all. And it's going to be kind of the ticking clock of my career and lifetime documentary that we're yes. in the process of making. Which is um, which was quite amazing because there was a kind of a part of that though that touches you quite emotionally, doesn't it? The 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 uh, is it Elgin marbles as well, and this kind of ownership of people's heritage and history and culture, which you kind of yes. relate back to your own childhood and and your mother, yes. which was quite which is quite a touching bit. Do you want to just explain a little bit about that? Well, yes. Uh, hold on, just a second. I'm I need to tell them to be quiet. Outside, they're distracting me. 
I told them to shut the fuck up and they haven't. Okay. So hold on. Hello, Kristen. Hey, Christine. you guys Hello. are talking really, really loud. It's all that going in there. Okay. Okay. Please talk quiet somewhere else. Bye. They're not paying attention. They're still talking away. There you go. Okay. That's that's yes. You're you're the the this, the idea of heritage and and culture and identity. Yes, related yes. to your own mother, which was quite uh, yes, which was kind of what the book is so good at bringing together. Not just about talking about what person you you know famous person you met, but it 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 was two different layers of it. One is that um, my family, you know, was from Cuba my mother's family, and they lived in a provincial town. And um, by the time my great-grandfather died, uh, you know, they were kind of like faded aristocracy. Uh, they were broke. All they had left was a falling down mansion. And um, this lost heritage was something that my, um, my grandmother was always talking about. And somehow that was in my mother too. So somehow, you know, we were going to make it. And somehow we're going to restore ourselves to the, our former grandeur, let's say. And um, somewhere along the way, my mother uh, met uh, an American sculptor. Um, she, her name was Lee Burnham. And she sculpted my mother in, in uh, various forms. And one of them was this bass relief tablet. It was, you know, it's about three inches thick of Brazilian walnut. And in it, you know, it's all carved in wood and it's it's my mother in the center and there are men behind her that, that look like like Greeks, you know, in, in robes and very strong, you know, profiles and, um, you know, kind of biblical uh, positions. And, you know, the, that sculptor knew a lot about my mother's life and the men in her life and how she was always feeling pulled, you know, from one man to the other. And so, you know, when I got the opportunity to um, perform at the Parthenon, I, I said, I want to do something to help preserve the, the, you know, the Parthenon help to restore these precious um, relics. They're not, it's not art. I mean, it's like re religious objects, a part of the temple of, of Athena that, you know, the crowns, the, the 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 whole Acropolis, and anytime I ever spoke to uh, Greeks about this, they actually break into tears, and 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 it it was such it's such a national crisis for them that's happened for two hundred years because when they were being occupied, um, you know, this Lord Elgin came in and took and taught them out half of them like. Well, a third of them just, just got destroyed by the brutal way that they chopped them out, you know, because they were like three feet deep. And then, you know, they were chopped down, you know, to maybe like eight inches, 10 inches um, deep. And many of them fell and, and broke. Um, it was sacrilegious, really. Yes. And so, you know, um, ever since then, all, you know, the different uh Governments that have come and gone have tried to negotiate to try to get their return. And imagine if somebody had come in and stolen a piece of Stonehenge. And then, you know, it's like, well, you know, that that if if you think of Stonehenge, it's 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 almost religious. It's like something so deep in the identity and the spirituality of the British people. So imagine that um, you know being their experience as well. Yes, so, absolutely. Uh, and so, um, you know, I got behind this, uh, to, you know, to this concert to raise funding for, uh, to raise awareness and, you know, for, you know, to help the Acropolis Museum because the, the museum was built to receive them back. They're not going to be going back on the building. They can't, you know, but it, it's built so you can actually walk around them as if you were on, you know, walking around the top la layer, and what's there in the missing pieces are kind of white casts, you know, that are just, you know, not even close to what the originals are. 
No. So I, I hope I hope that um, that you know there's something different about let's say a, a work of art, you know, like the Mona Lisa. You know, everyone's you know, however it got to the Louvre, um, everyone knows that they can go there to see it, and it's not a religious figure. You know, it's not it's not something that's you know it's not like a a relic, the way these are. So I'm hoping that people will come to their senses and that everyone Europe has become so small, and you know of course the UK is right there. It's easy to go visit Greece and fun, way fun, and go and visit them. Yeah, they'd be there. So, and hopefully, you know, wherever they are right now, they could create a pavilion with, you know, you know, there's somebody that's creating 3D versions with lasers of the of these things um, uh, to to be able to be put in place at the British Museum. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, we, you know, I I got behind this because my husband and I have been going to Greece ever since our kids were five years old, and we always go to this one little island called Polegandros, which is off the coast of Santorini. And we, you know, we don't think of it as vacationing. We we think of it as like another home, you know, because we go and we stay in this little hotel that's owned by this lovely family. And the kids have just played in the streets with the local kids. In the beginning, they didn't speak the same language. And now, of course, you know, the, those kids have grown up and they're in college and everybody speaks English. And they're still all friends. And they still hang out. And it was just so wonderful to be, you know, taken in by the by the people of Greece as uh, as one of their own. So that's why we're so um, anyway, I didn't really answer the question (laughs) because what happened was that when I was about 11 years old or 12 years old, I my mother, you know, we had always had this carving. This it's almost five feet tall. it's it's massive. It's it's beautiful, and um, it was the only thing we had of value. And I came home and it was gone. And my mother sold it for twelve hundred dollars um, because she had no money, no money for food and or fuel for a car, so she could get to work. And I mean, I cried so hard. You know, it was it was our identity was this beautiful carving. So finally, uh, 45 years later, I was able to locate it in Puerto Rico, and I was able to buy it back. And before my mother died, she, you know, she already had dementia, but I brought her to New York, and she was able to look at it and touch it, and, and she wept, and she said, you know, it was so necessary to bring this back to us. And so... That's I didn't even think about that when I got all involved with the Parthenon thing and the, the sculptures. I, I, you know, it was when I left finally Greece on the way back home when I was in the plane and it dawned on me that this was a parallel to my life where something was taken away. And it took, you know, 45 years, which is a fourth of the time that the, the Parthenon sculptures were gone to finally recover them. Yes. And, uh, you know, so I know that I'm talking too much, but um, that's the story about why that parallel means so much to me. And it's more than that. It's like the the loss of, you know, our country, uh, Cuba, um, you know, and also, you know, my my biological father is Hungarian and they they also lost their country you know, to the Soviets when they came in and took over yes. for, for 60 years. So in my family, there's just been a lot of loss of heritage. And also not knowing who my father was till I was 18, it was kind of like this lost history also, this lost time. And lost figures big, big in my book. Yes, I know. I can. I can see. I can read. Yeah, that's that's an amazing story, actually. 
And just so, you know, actually, I thought you told it beautifully, really. I mean, just going slightly back to the 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 part of the beginning. I mean, I was born 64, so I'm now in my late 50s. So my sort of just interested, my early musical awakening was that glam world in the early 70s of Sweet Slay T-Rex. But luckily, David Bowie was my first single and first love with Space Oddity. That had the B-side of Changes and Velvet Goldmine. Did you, did you have a kind of a, a musical moment, an awakening that sort of, shifted everything for you that made you think oh this is there's something magical here well the, for me it was hearing the music of laura nero when i was 14 years old and i had made friends with lisa wexler her father jerry wexler was a famous producer and one of the founders of atlantic records and she was what they called a snowbird and i had met her on miami beach and all the kids used to kind of wander through the lower lobbies of the hotels. We were never allowed in the lobbies. So we'd wander, you know, little coffee shops. Then there was a skating rink and there was this and that. And we met and, um, you know, she would come down every other weekend. So she invited me to her house uh, uh, where the, the father was working at, at Criteria Recording Studio, recording Aretha Franklin and, and all of this. And um, I... Uh, she played me this record and it was Laura Nero's record called more than a new discovery on verb folkways. It wasn't even on their label and the sound, the wailing sound of her voice um, made such an impression on me. Um, you know, it just touched me and it, her music was so sophisticated and, and complex and would shift time signatures and keys and her rhyming was so fresh and uh, personal. And it wasn't like the music we would just listen to on the radio. It, it sounded special. And I said, okay, that's what I want to do. And then I started, you know, pursuing my own songwriting. And of course, listening to her records and, and Joni Mitchell and Elton John when he came along after and uh, Van Morrison and um, wow, Tim Buckley, um, all of these kind of folk heroes that were making this confessional music had a big effect on me. What was what and was that so, period? What was the period just before that, like 60, 66, 67? It was the summer of love, and that kind of psychedelic world had started to blossom. You know, there had been the Monterey Pop Festival, and then Jimi Hendrix, the experience, Jefferson Airplane, the doors. Did people did that music kind of you know have an impact on you? The kind of the progression of the Beatles and the Stones? Oh, of course. I mean, it was that was mass, mass produced i mean you know it was everywhere you know television and, and radio and all of that um but as far as you know experiencing those artists uh i found out much later that the problem was that florida is such a long state to get to south florida where the actual population was cost a lot in touring and putting people up and the, the fuel and the trucks and all of that so it was much fewer and far between that we were able to get big stars to come to Miami. And so the, after Woodstock and, you know, during that period of time, there were some uh, pop festivals that, that lasted two or three days and people would come from all over. And me and my, my high school friends went and we slept on a blanket for three days. I mean, it was just horrendous, you know in the mud i mean it was all that but i did get to see janice joplin perform for right. hours be because that night the rolling stones were going to appear but they kept not coming out so she was on the stage with the uh edgar winter band right uh and uh they were playing blues and she was just singing she was drinking uh southern comfort and, you know, two and a half hours later, she was singing just flat on the ground because she couldn't even hold herself up, but she was still singing. And eventually the roadies came and they scooped her up and they took her off the stage. The Rolling Stones went on about three o'clock in the morning. I mean, we had waited a whole day and night to see the Rolling Stones. I mean, just crazy, right? Yes. <laughs> there was, they were supposed to go on at 10, you know, <laughs> three in the morning. And so... um 
you know, I saw Jimi Hendrix burn a guitar. I saw, saw you know, amazing legends and these and these things. And I saw the effect that they had on the multitudes that were watching. And I said, I want that. I want that for me. I want to be a star. I want to be a rock star. So yes. that, that's the thing that, that, you know, it's sort of like, I, I keep saying it's like you 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 just fall forward, but then and keep it, going. But it's kind of interesting because you were at that stage. I was probably seventeen when the the sixties or the early seventies. So yeah, eighteen. But then you know the death of you know Morris, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Brian Jones had died the year before. Did you did that have an impact on you at that stage? Thinking, oh, that's that that party didn't end terribly well, did it? And then the Beatles break up. There's definitely there was the Manson murders, and then it was Altamont. Did did that feel like a bit of a shift for you, or did you slip into that singer songwriter and just think, whatever? Well, I I had dropped out of school and me and my um, uh, songwriting partner uh, decided to make a duo called Night Child. So I changed my, uh, I, she changed her name to Virgil Knight and then I became Desmond Child and Desmond came from the Beatles song, Obladi Oblada, because in the, in the song he says, you know, he goes kind of like androgynous at the end and, and puts on makeup and his pretty face and all that. And that touched me, you know, that was like, okay, that's me. And, you know, I was, you know, looking at David Bowie and the makeup and, and Mick Jagger. And I said, okay, well, I have all these feelings. Uh, you know, I like girls. I like boys. I, I, I must be born to be a rock star. You know, that's me, you know, so I can be anything I want to be. Of course, you know, we've seen rock go from that to you know all macho hetero you know bands of the 80s of course they all wore makeup and and lipstick and and nail polish and all that but they had their hairy chest so <laughs> you know that that made them real men right yes <laughs> tricky one yes so so you, your first band the band that you you have Desmond Child and and Rouge. That this is kind of at a period which is quite interesting because we'd had the heavy metal bands, we'd had prog rock, there'd been disco there in the UK and in America. Obviously, there would be, you know, punk. Actually, there was punk in Europe as well. But then, you know, how did how did that sort of influence your kind of creative direction at this stage? Well, I was I was attending NYU uh, and I got scholarships into the music department. Um, Steinhardt School. Um, I don't think it was called that. It was the School of Ed then. And um, I I had a girlfriend at, at the time that I had met at Miami Dade Junior College before. So I was my third year of college. And um, she, Maria Vidal, and so she came up and her best friend, Diana Grisselli, came up. And then I had met um, Miriam Valley when I lived up in Woodstock and all this kind of stuff. And so we formed our singing group and um, we were playing the cabarets because it, that's, we thought that was glamorous. We were big fans of Bette Midler and uh, just the comedy with the music and we had skits and, you know, uh, you know, Barry Manilow was the piano player and he was singing his songs and somehow we, we got in and we started becoming popular. But the more popular we became and playing bigger rooms, we realized that we had to be, you know, make a bigger sound. So it wasn't just blue-eyed soul. It started becoming rock. And we started fusing, fusing uh, R&B with rock. And, you know, now we were signed to Capitol Records and we were making our first record. And we were using power chords, but we were telling song, singer-songwriter stories about the city. There was Latin drums. And, you know, we we're talking about, you know, because we were Latin. So we were incorporating some of that. And if you see a lot of the work that I've done, you see, you know, later on, you know, with uh, Bon Jovi or Ricky Martin, all those elements were in Desmond Child and Rouge, you know, eight, ten years before. Yes. Um, and so. Um, 
that's what happened. We we evolved because we started we started to get you know this feeling that we could be big. Um, but then there was around that time that I was growing up and I was realizing, wow, I'm way more gay than I am bi. And you know, Maria was my girlfriend, and she and I were like holding the whole thing together. And 1979 was a very explosive year in many ways. We released two albums. We toured the country. Uh, the Girls in Rouge were on Broadway with with Gilda Radner uh, and her Gilda Live, and it was filmed by Mike Nichols. And then uh, Gilda invited us to come on Saturday Night Live. That was at the end of 1979, and then we broke up because we just couldn't hold it all together. It was we were like stressed beyond, and we weren't emotionally prepared and we didn't have the right guidance to know how to navigate fame and thus you know all of us had somebody in our lives that was saying you don't need them you're a star on your own but the fact is that we were stronger together than the, than we were separately but we didn't know that yet yes god that's quite um, that's quite an intense couple of years you had there did you did it feel like oh dear the part this is over or did you did you think that was it or did you have a moment of existential angst after that band had had broken i i did and i mean i it's it's in my book i i had met john landau who was uh you know the manager and producer of bruce springsteen and he took a liking to me and i would go up and listen to you know he had made he had produced uh the pretender with jackson brown uh as one of his side things uh, and then he was playing me um, Bruce Springsteen music and saying, you know, once I'm done with this, you know, big thing that I'm doing with Bruce, you know, you're the only other person I'd be interested in managing. And I just clung to that for two years. So I was just, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting. And eventually, you know, he got too busy. And, you know, and so... It didn't work out. And that's when I met Bob Crew. So I, you know, I I guess I was looking for father figures, you know. So I um I spent two years r- learning how to write songs, really, with Bob Crew, with the idea that he was going to produce me as a solo artist, and he got me a, a singles deal. Can you believe that? You know, uh, just one, like two songs on Epic Records, and then they dropped me. It was like a favor to, to Bob. And, you know, I went back to my um, blue-eyed soul kind of roots for that. But, you know, it was during during that time, you know, I I did have the big success with Kiss, um, uh, with Paul Stanley, who co-wrote with me, and we wrote I Was Made For Loving You, which, you know, has become... I just recently found out it, it was only number one in one country, Australia. But I was, you know, it was like in the top five, you know, all over the world. But it's their most successful, biggest selling song, you know, of their whole career. And (laughs) it was a song, it was a song that uh, Gene Simmons hated because it was (laughs) to him very off brand for the kind of rock that he envisioned Kiss being. He was a purist on that. But Paul was, Paul was always a, um, a big fan of Motown. So when we wrote that song, we were thinking of, you know, like, well, let's get a dance beat. We weren't thinking disco. We we're thinking, you know, like standing in the shadow of love. You know, I was made for love and you. I mean, it was that kind of, you know, big Motown sound and put rock guitars on it. And we actually created an innovation that started opening up people's imagination to how rock and dance and R&B could fuse together and create, you know, the pop that then we later heard from Prince and Madonna and Michael Jackson. And so many things happened after that one song. It was epic. 
Yes. Well, I think with the, the 80s was kind of interesting because that was the beginning of Stadium Rock and MTV. And in, in this country, it started in the early 80s. I suppose there was two-tone, but then we had the Blitz, Blitz Kids and New Romantics. So there was Spandau Ballet and um, Duran Duran and then that cool sound of Sade. And in America, obviously, there was those bands like, you know, Bruce Springsteen started getting bigger and then you had more power chords and people wanting a bigger sound and you your songwriting really lent itself to that stadium rock didn't it having very accessible kind of anthems lines that people could remember but it was interesting you mentioned your love of the singer songwriter from the early 70s like Joni Mitchell who I loved Blue and Court and Spark and The Hissing of Summer Lawns and then Van Morrison as well with Moondance and and um, yes, Astral Weeks, you know, Jackson Brown, all those people. So it's interesting that, you know, because I always thought Joni Mitchell could put complex emotional kind of feelings into really simple language. And you managed to sort of also conjure those kind of classic lines, didn't you? So does that kind of go back to that period that you were talking about in the early 70s? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've always been a person... I don't know if I've come up with anything original, really, myself. But my way of being original was to uh, kind of blend styles um, and kind of like put things together, unexpected things together, influences together. And so in a way, it was innovative in that sense. And this, you know, a lot of the, this, the songs that I collaborated on, like, you give love a bad name and um, living on a prayer with Bon Jovi. Those had a real strong R and B base um, core, and you know, with living on a prayer, it was like telling a story the way that Laura Nero and Joni Mitchell would tell a story. Yes, it was, it, it was telling a story about a, a, a working class couple that was, you know, having you know hard times and. Um, and when you when you heard, when you heard Bruce Springsteen's "The River," did that also make you think, "Oh, yeah, this"? You know, as you mentioned, um, you know, John in that previous conversation, did did you think actually people? This is what people enjoy. They want to put themselves into that emotional state. Well, I mean, he he was like a globe, you know shadow cast upon all of us in New York at that time that were making music because he was so successful, you know, that, you know, my managers, you know, were pushing me to make music more in that style because, you know, they were such big fans. Everything would stop if there was a Bruce Springsteen concert. Like we like were nothing. And it was all about Bruce Springsteen. He was the God, he was the boss. And he had that East coast, um, sound and it was um he he borrowed a lot from the you know phil specter and dylan and he put together this kind of real brill building sound with his persona i mean it's just he like invented something's fresh you know to this day i mean it's just when you look back at his work i mean it's just massive and and so powerful so, you know, of course, the label we were on, Capitol Records, they had their, what they thought was their Springsteen, which was Bob Seger. And, you know, then they had uh, the opposite. They had A Taste of Honey, which was a disco group. So somehow we fell through the cracks between those two things. Yes. So they they were a West Coast label. They didn't understand the New York thing. You know, the you know, it was very you know, foreign, and they didn't understand the humor, and they didn't understand the campiness, and how all that worked together to, to create what we were. And um, so we, we didn't have enough support, you know, to, I mean, they didn't give us enough money for tour support, because, you know, we really need to be out there, and going to radio stations, and performing, not just, you know, with a little band, we needed lights. We need, you know, what you do when you actually believe in somebody, you put millions into them. And I think that we were onto something. We really, we really did. And um, we were getting better and better. But like I said, that crashed with the, our, the personal life. Yes. So, I mean, I mean, it, okay. So it ended, 
Uh, and I mean, by the way, we still, you know, we got back together several years ago after performing a tribute to Laura Nero at um, Lincoln Center. We started, we kept, you know, getting together and and uh, we've been recording new music and we do it for the love of it. We still really haven't, we, we re-released our two albums on BMG. We like remastered and then we did a brand new version of Our Love is Insane like more danceable, you know, like contemporary. We re-recorded it from scratch because the original masters were lost by the record company because uh, they were stored at the at Media Sound. And when Media Sound closed, they told every record company, come and get your Miles Davis masters. This And people didn't show up and all of those masters were thrown into dumpsters. Oh my God. Just, you know... <laughs> And and so you know we always thought that the record company had big storage places and that where everything was safely yes. yeah and it's like no it didn't work like that nobody cared yes god that's that <laughs> that so, is a tragic thing I mean do because with a lot of your classic you know the the lines you know a lot of those classic lines and I suppose one of the singer songwriters well not singer songwriter but performers I loved in the 80s was Morrissey and the Smiths because he he conjured up such kind of evocative kind of ideas of loneliness and heartache and alienation which frankly we all love did you find that something that you was kind of easier during those early years because it was that much closer to you those those kind of experiences, people working in diners, people struggling, you know, relationships being just, you know, being so fragile. Did that? Did all those kind of childhood and teenage moments feed quite directly into your songwriting? Well, yeah, I mean, there's always the past that's looming in because that's what you're referencing. Um, but you know, there's always now too, and there's a lot of now and as you're writing in every song, you know, it's like now. And so influences, yes. Uh, uh, but I I really am not a person that, I mean, it's ironic because I wrote this long book, but um, I really don't look back like that. I'm really looking forward. And I really enjoy modern pop and would love to, you know, work with you know adele and and troy sivan and um you know yes. sam smith sam smith uh lewis capaldi i mean um dua lipa i mean there are these artists that to me are so inspiring and they're doing fresh things you know like they're just so magnificent and you know i i would love to to be a part of that i get to work with these young uh producers a uh, rock mafia and uh we've been we had a hit together with zed called beautiful now and um you know had a hit with ava max which was more of an interpolation of a song i had written um solely if you were a woman i was a man which was the predecessor to you give love a bad name yes. and um it was a it was a huge hit um so somehow i'm still you know in the mix, you know, I'm still working and I still go. And, you know, right now we've been, we had a song recorded uh, by Jojo Siwa, who's an amazing dancer. And, you know, she's a, I think she started out as a Disney uh, child star and she's turned into like fantastic uh, artist. And, uh, you know, that's how Miley started out. You know, she was, you know, on television and Hannah Montana and all that. And so, um, you know, we're, you know, we're writing songs for Jojo's uh, record and it's fun, you know, and, and the stuff has to be really contemporary and the production has to be modern and has to be fresh. And so I'm all about now, yes. all about now. So when you when you hear sort of like Taylor Swift or um, Billie Eilish, how do you relate to that? Because it's something that I've not struggled with, but you know, I'm an old person in my nearly sixty now who was obsessed with music and still are, but realise that when you listen to music that's been recorded and sung and written by someone much younger, it can be a bit odd. And I just wondered how you, but you, you know, obviously had a a whole career in music. How does how do you relate to some of the the songs that they write and how do you give the you know do you sort of 
not judge music now, but do you sort of appreciate the lyrics of people or the musicality? Absolutely. I mean, I'm blown away with um, Billie Eilish's uh, movie song for Barbie. Uh, What was I made for? I mean, it's just, it's breathtaking. It's, it's existential. It's our modern day to be or not to be, you know, it's so, I'm, I mean, she's, she's a genius. I mean, she'll win the Oscar again with that. I mean, she's got to, I mean, it's, that's the way it is. And, um, you know, Taylor Swift, I mean, I mean, she's, I, she's a genius too. I mean, she just keeps going and she makes people really relate to her, you know? And I, I think that I love everything and anything, you know, that's, that's good and that's successful. I salute them because they bring people to music. And if they bring people to music, then, then perhaps they might, you know, like maybe something I did. You know, but if people stop listening to music and just stay on video games, you know, then that's a problem. But I think in the end, people love hearing music and creating their own story, their own visual story in their mind, because they bring their their story to the song. Yeah, and that's something you know you, you you know you you can't spoon feed that into a person they have to participate and art is really you know it's not just the making of the art it's somebody has to view it or hear it to complete the piece of art but do you ever go down any sort of rabbit hole or you know you know just to try and work out what it is that creates that you know line or that kind of rift that makes people remember something 50 years later or you know the following week you still can remember it does that sort of melt your brain at times trying to work out what it is that creates something perfect if i if i went about it that way i'd never have another success i mean it's just like the thing is it's that um history isn't really history till it's history you know (laughs) Uh, you never know what's going to be great because it's always a, my mentor, Bob crew would say a hit is not just one thing or a star, you know, a hit star. It's, you know, the, 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 the song, the character that's singing it, um, the, the times that surround it, uh, the manager, the producer, the musicians, the PR person, the social media person, uh, all of those things have to align together to create something that, you know, that shines in a, in a field, in an ocean, where how many hundreds of thousands of songs are released every week around the world? Right? Yeah, I mean, yes. I, heard an, I heard that there's actually a site you can go on where you can hear a Spotify song that's never been heard once. So if it's like this alternate universe of unlistened music, so if if you happen upon a song and you listen to it, then it becomes a legitimate Spotify song, just one listen. I mean, it's just like, think about that. And how do you find out about it? How do you know to do that? So I think people go on that site and they just keep listening to stuff until they like something. And then, you know, maybe as they're listening, then those songs actually fall into the legitimate Spotify universe. Yes. I, I don't strange. know. <laughs> it is Isn't very that strange. strange. Well, we were, I mean, in this country, we had a DJ called John Peel, who was just very good at narrating and collecting a show. He he had a, about three or four nights a week on the BBC Radio 1. And he was just very good at being able to find that perfect, you know, not perfect, but a pop song, a reggae song, an African song, a Bulgarian folk song, a heavy rock song. And he just put them into a show. And it the diversity of those shows was brilliant, but also... For me as a listener, it was just really nice to be able to go, oh, yes, I've just heard something completely random that I would have never come across before. I mean, he played early rap music from people like Public Enemy or Roxé Chante or some, 
Yes, really, you know, he had a very good ear and, and sort of having people like that, I find them missing now. That's the, you know, the the gatekeepers. Well, I think- yeah, I mean, the, what happened was as they uh, radio became conglom- conglomerates, the way that they would make a profit and save money is having one person program a thousand stations. Before, in the battle days, you could go from town to town and meet the, it wasn't allowed so, so that, you know, the media could not be controlled by one voice. So then in the years, the Clinton years, they lifted those um, those restraints. And I think it, it was detrimental because, you know, the taste of all these individual people, they would like one song more than another song. And, um, you know, that created more variety. So now you listen to a playlist that's like 10 songs over and over and over again until one of them falls out and it's replaced by another song by the weekend, you know? Yes. And then you you hear like the same people and then maybe somebody jumps in from out of nowhere and now they become part of the pantheon, you know, and then somebody that was always in the top is now off to the side somewhere, maybe making their next record. So... Um, it's very, I mean, think about it. I mean, there's so few huge stars and, and it's all programmed by, you know, corporate people. Yes. And, 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 and those corporate people also may be coming from very, uh, kind of conservative backgrounds because they came from business. They came from, you know, Ivy league schools. They, they, they weren't scrappy you know, people that sold, you know, records in a record store and then climbed into a radio station and then had their little midnight show and then, you know, eventually became the program director of that station. And um, we really are missing the thing that you're that you're talking about, that personalization of music uh, to b- deliver us their taste. You know, we just get we we just get one taste, and then people start writing for that person. You yes. say you say, oh well, if I come up with that, that'll never get played on the you know the it it could never be aired. It'll never play, and it, and that really happens in country music. It be, yes. almost seems, sounds like it's the same person that's singing every song because the persona that they're portraying could be different sounding singers, but it's the same person, male or female. They're talking in a very narrow scope of, of experiences, the bar, the truck, you know, um, the divorce, the, you know, the cheater. I mean, there are these archetypal things that they always are singing about. And, you know, I guess the people out there relate to that, maybe. Or they don't know any better to to not relate to it. I liked it when the bad guys, you know, the bad boys, you know, like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and those guys, you know, they sang about real stuff. And, yes. uh, you know, I mean, I it's not everybody. I mean, there are geniuses that, you know, Chris Stapleton and like people like that, that, you know, are really fresh and, you know, great. But, um, you know, this is true for, you know, every genre of music. It gets homogenized. And, you know, I, I think that I've managed to, to stay in popular music because of my hustle. And it's like I try to find ways to make the, 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 the sandbox that I'm playing in and try to make a, the tallest castle. So, you know. Life. Well, I think that I think that's why when you were talking about that, that's why I really like sort of tuning in to listen to what Elton John's playing on his radio show for Apple Music because because he's a fan and he'll just put what he wants. I think he's not just being told you've got to play this, this, and this this week. He, he you know, whatever he discovers, he seems to just he's just a very like an eager teenager going, God, you must listen to this. And I love those people because you just realise it's quite genuine and it's quite fun because their enthusiasm is is kind of overwhelming. Um, well, I hate. You know, I'm. I'm so sorry to. Desmond has another interview in five minutes. In yes. four minutes. 
Okay, I will. So, um, I don't know if you have one more quick little question. <laughs> yes, sorry. So, so a couple of um, yes on on Elton, but just a couple of songs that I just were always loved. I sort of hope I got this right. There was "Leaving Las Vegas" and also "Keep the Faith." Was was "Keep the Faith" one of yours as well? Yes. Keep the faith. Keep the faith, because it's kind of it's an interesting one in the sense that it was done by Bon Jovi, but it could have been something like the the Charlatans, who were a, a Manchester band who had captured that Manchester sound from the late eighties. Can you remember where you wrote it and how that inspiration came about? Yeah, we wrote that at Richie Sambora's house when he was still married to Heather Locklear. And it was up in uh, Thousand Oaks, like on the mountaintop, you know, it was like uh, this, you know, looked like a movie set, like from, you know, Melrose Place or something. It was all like very designed. And um, I had already had the success with Ricky Martin. And, uh, you know, it was massive. And, and so John was saying, like, let's write the next, you know, Vida Loca, come on, let's let's write something that's lively. And so that song had percussion and, um, you know, uh, and it also had, you know, their theme, which is hope, keep the faith. You know, they, he sticks with that. And, um, you know, I think that that that's how that song came to be. Yes. And I think I think there was a little bit of. Uh, oh, that song crazy in there. You know, the one I'm talking about by Seal? Yeah. Yeah, that was popular like a couple of years before. So that was kind of floating around in our sensibilities, you know, of, of the sense of things or the world of it, you know, yes. because it, it, I just, it was I just, a bit exhausted, ex exotic in its own way. It just has a fantastic urgency and it's got a great vibe to it. And it's just one of those songs that... You just think, oh, this this is just a bit of genius. And also, okay, just the last one, Waking Up in Vegas. Was that quite a straightforward track to, to write? Or, yes, how did that one? Well, well, well um, we were encouraged to write with this girl that had been the lead singer of the Matrix production team. They were going to do their own group. And she was, she and a, another guy, I don't remember who he was, were going to be co- lead singers and that deal fell apart so she didn't have a, de a deal but we heard how great she was so andreas carlson and i got together with her and this was in santa monica uh, and um my son my sons were like three years old and um she came in and we started writing this very alanis morissette uh type song she was very influenced by alanis morissette you know the big full throttle kind yeah. of sound and the song was called uh last cry or my last cry and uh then when we took a lunch break she was so much fun so full of life and and giggly and you know the ultimate fag hag i mean just i just adored her and i said why are we writing a song that's sad when that's not you why don't we write a song that's like you and so i knew uh her best friend faras um and uh you know, he's a gay friend of ours and, and, uh, you know, they had a lot of adventures together. And so I said, why don't we write about you and Faraz going to Vegas and just like getting into all kinds of trouble. And so Andrea started playing like the chords of like, uh, hit me with your best shot. And I confessed that to Eddie Schwartz, who wrote that song. <laughs> and, uh, we, you know, this, that, 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 and like, and, and so, um, we started writing the storyline, you know, and it's like, uh, why are these lights so bright? Did we get hitched last night dressed up like it, like Elvis and all of this imagery? And it became like this very fun song. So it helped her get a, a record deal at Columbia Records with um, uh, Steve Greenberg. He had three acts, Katy Perry, Jonas Brothers and Fountains of Wayne. They fired him and let go of those acts. Can you believe that? Yeah. And so she car she carried that song to her next deal at um at, at Capitol, right? Yeah. And um then I thought, okay, we're definitely gonna have her first single. Well, no, Max Martin got in there, thank God, 
and created like, you know, Kiss the Girl and all of those early hits. And then we became the fourth single. We thought, oh, we'll never make it to number one. It made it to number one anyway. And so, um, you know, that's the story. Yes. Well, well, they, sorry to wrap uh, to, to cut no, this. That's fine. conversation has been really, really good. Um, Desmond has another uh, interview I, that's literally kicking off uh, right now. But um, David, thank you so much yes. for this. Well, thank you as well. Thank um, you. Both of you. Yes. Thank you. Have, have a send, lovely day. Send us, send us the link. I want to read what you wrote. Yes. Okay. I okay. Thanks a lot. Have a great okay. day. And yeah, bye. all the best. And love the book. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you. Oh, I'll say goodbye. God, I know, the excitement. I love leaving those bits in. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Desmond Child, talking about his book, Living on a Prayer, Big Songs, Big Life, available from all good bookshops. And um, yes, the his website is in the links below, but um, has written so many classics. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show, David So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. These interviews have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.